I get one job. Anyone who stands up and preaches gets one job with you to make the Bible come alive, to help some text of Scripture land on you in a helpful way for your life. We're preaching through something called Seven Mile Road, a field guide, going to the 20th chapter of the book of Acts very slowly and saying, what is it that a holy and a healthy a thriving church looks like? What are they committed to together that will bear fruit in their lives and in the mission that Jesus has sent them to? The big question for us for today is this. What would it look like for our church and for you personally to be free from the love of money? What would it look like for a church and for you, for me, to be set free from the love of money. Let me pray. We'll talk about it. Father, visit us. You promised to do that. You said that your word is like rain that doesn't bounce off the ground and skip back up to the heavens, but takes root and causes growth. So I pray specifically that the two verses of scripture that we will press today would be like giant drops of rain that hit the soil of our soul, and life explodes there. Would you hear my prayer? Help me, please. Amen. Okay, let's walk in the light on this from the first few words. Have you ever met somebody that you are pretty sure they don't love money? So I am not naturally one of those people. I say it like this, I love money. I don't think this was as true back before I had any. So we grew up in a house where our needs were provided for, but my dad was an electrician, non-union mostly. My mom was a bookkeeper. I forget what her hourly salary was in the 1980s. It was down there. We always had just enough money to do whatever we would do as a family, but there was not tons of extra cash floating around in our life. I remember being a college student and wishing that I could buy an $8 pizza on a Friday night. And I couldn't because I literally did not have $8 in cash. I remember my very first job out of college teaching high school in Lynn. And the base salary was $23,000. And then I coached a little bit and that pushed it up to 25 or 26. But then in 2004, I began to be blessed by God with a solid, steady, ample paycheck. And I found something begin to happen in my heart. Whoa, I kind of like this having money thing. And that very quickly runs to, I actually love this having money thing. One of the things that happens if you're in your heart, if that is an issue with you, is that when you then see somebody who has more money than you do, and therefore more access to the things that money can buy, security, comfort, pleasures, status, you see that they have more than you, and your heart moves to this place of, 
I want it. I want it. This is why the text of scripture that we're going to work today absolutely stops me in my tracks. Boom. Paul says these words to us. He says, here's one mark of a healthy church. Here's one mark of faithful gospel ministry. Here's the word that he says. When I was with you, I coveted no one's silver, gold, or apparel. Read this again with me. I coveted no one's silver, gold, or apparel. This is almost an unbelievable statement, is it not? Have you ever had somebody say something to you and you were like, I do not believe you right now? Cheesecake Factory. You know that fridge that they have with the glass opening and you can go look at all of your options for cheesecake after you eat 67,000 calories? You're going to put down 2,000 more. Imagine standing there with someone and they looked that thing up and down, front row, back row, looked at the names. And then you said to them, hey, man, which one are you excited about? And they said to you, eh, nothing looks good in there. Would you believe them? What would you say to them? You lying. Because you know something looks good in that freezer, fridge. Either the If you're a heavy eater, the peanut butter cup one. If you're a light, the banana cream. But something looks good to you. You are lying to me. Super Bowl 51. Did anyone catch that? We didn't get to talk about that yet. Let's say that you were talking with a Bostonian. And you said to them, hey, did you watch that game from beginning to end? Did you watch that game from beginning to end? Did anybody in here bail at halftime or the third quarter? Okay, please don't raise your hand. If you said to them, hey, you watched that game from beginning to end, what did you think? And they said to you, eh, kind of boring. Would you believe them? No way. You're telling me that not once in that miraculous comeback, touchdown, 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 two-point conversion, touchdown, two-point conversion, not even when the coin flipped, you didn't get some goosebumps, not even on that last touchdown, what would you say to them? You lying. You know, as a Bostonian, you got excited at some point in that second half. That has been my reaction to this verse of Scripture. I have looked at my Bible, and I want to say to the Apostle Paul, you're lying. There's no way this is true. I think about this with me. Paul was double occupation. He was a tent maker and a church planter. Neither one of those two vocations are very sexy. Neither one of them are very lucrative. You're not going to be raking in the dough with either of those professions before you. And yet, he was surrounded by money. He was church planting for three years in the city of Ephesus. Ephesus was as rich as Boston, as rich as the North Shore of Boston, as rich as the city of Melrose, third or fourth largest city in the Roman Empire, thriving industry on multiple fronts. There was wealth everywhere. This was not rural Indiana or Appalachia or Holyoke or somewhere like that. This was the back bay. He would have been rubbing shoulders with, evangelizing, observing people with money. 
Brownstones on Com Ave, and beachfront property in Martha's Vineyard. Do you feel that? Driving a Range Rover in the wintertime through the snow, but then a Porsche convertible in the summer. Do you feel that? Armani, Verdacci, Gucci, Nike. Do you feel that? Over and over again, he was around people with more earnings power, higher levels of income, better vacations, faster, fancier cars, nicer wardrobes, and yet somehow he was able to say these words. These are unusual words. I wasn't expecting them. I listened to a comedian once, and he was the hot new comedian in Hollywood, so he moved to, where do you move? To L.A. And very quickly, he became friends with some very rich comedians, David Chappelle, Chris Rock, Martin Lawrence. And he said he got invited to a party at Martin Lawrence's house. $36 million house. He said there wasn't just a pool table, there was a pool hall. They didn't just throw the frisbee around in the backyard, they hang glided in the backyard. Ten car garage. They didn't just have a a TV with a, a microwave for popcorn. Movie theater inside of the house and behind glass was a real popcorn buttery maker. Basketball court, but not concrete. You know that funky material that helps you to jump? This was Martin Lawrence's house. He said when he got home that night and walked into his own apartment, he was angry and grumpy and depressed. What am I supposed to do? Watch a TV movie? What am I supposed to just make microwave popcorn? How can I ever be happy now that I have been to Martin Lawrence's? house. What was he saying? I coveted someone's silver, gold, and apparel. This is me. Totally true story. A few years ago, I was meeting up with Dave and Doug and Rob for lunch in the city. Blue line, orange line, back base station. I don't remember where we ate because I'm not a foodie. I know I'm supposed to remember that, but I don't. I do remember on my way there, I stopped at the ATM to grab some cash. And the person before me had left their little ticket, you know, the receipt inside of the machine. So I grabbed it and I just nonchalantly looked at it. Do you know how much money this person who was in the, in the room just before me had in their everyday run-of-the-mill checking account? $365,000. I still remember the number. I coveted someone's silver, gold, and apparel. I actually carried that receipt around with me for like two weeks, and I was just showing it to people. I was like, you got to see this. There is somebody in Boston in their just everyday run-of-the-mill checking account. They have $365,000. And I began to covet their life. I began to think, what in the world kind of real assets and investments do they have? What kind of sneakers do they wear? Where do they go on vacation? Do you feel that? I want it. I want it. And yet Paul says that 
I was around a bunch of Martin Lawrences. I was in their home. I was around a bunch of people with $365,000 in their kick-around checking. And I didn't covet. Can you see what I mean when I say this verse in your Bible is supposed to stop you in your tracks? It raises two questions in my mind. One is, why is this so crucial, so important to Christian living, to church planting, that he would include this in his speech about what the marks of his ministry were? Why is this so crucial? And then, how in the world do you get there? How in the world do you get there? All right, let's see if we can answer those questions from the text itself. Let's work on this one first, right? Teaching you to love your Bible, love the words in your Bible. I covet it. What's that word mean? Covet means to want something really, really, really bad. It's actually a neutral verb, just meaning earnest desire. It is possible for you to covet something holy. Have you ever heard anyone use the phrase, I covet your prayers for this? That means I desperately need the people of God to be praying for this thing. Earnest desire. But 99.9% of the time when you use the word covet or see the word covet in your Bible, it is a bad thing, sinful. And that's because of our hearts run toward that place of sin. Earnest desire very quickly becomes what? Impure desire, misgrounded desire, obsessive desire, violent desire irregular desire. That's covet. And that's what covet means in this context. He says, I didn't have an impure, unchecked, misgrounded, obsessive, violent desire for silver, gold, or apparel. Uh, Silver, gold, apparel are metonyms in here. That means that these words are stand-ins for something else. So we do this all the time in English language. If a basketball coach yells at his team, butter, butter, what is he saying? Oh, you don't know, Tracy? (laughs) He's saying, somebody shoot the clock. The shot clock is running down. It's melting. The shot clock is melting. Nobody's ever heard that metonym? Goodness gracious, I got to get you on a basketball court. All right, let me try another one. If I said, we're going down to the track, what does that mean? I'm going to go smoke cigarettes and bet on on horse racing, right? That's what that means. If someone said, hey, 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 the suits are coming in at 2 o'clock, what does that mean? The bosses, the business executives are coming. We use one word to stand in for another all the time. Okay, Um, that's what this is. When he says, I didn't covet their silver and gold and apparel, what is he saying? I didn't covet their money or all the things that money affords them. So we get the whole metonym for money because we are so obsessed with money that we have dozens of stand-ins for money. You can list them off for me, right? Lettuce, cabbage, dough, dinero, bank, bling, Benjamins. We have tons of stand-ins for that. He's saying, I didn't covet their money. And then he throws in apparel, which is a stand-in for all that money can, can buy for you. I don't imagine that the Apostle Paul was like anxious to have like silk on his skin or cashmere on his neck. 
I think what he's saying is, I didn't go after their money or the life that it afforded them, the status. In American culture, you can't really tell. Like in this room right now, you wouldn't be able to know who was loaded and who was just trying to make it to Friday based on the way that you people are dressed, right? We kind of have a standard dress code. This was not the case in Ephesus. Apparel meant something. This would have been more like Pan M from the Hunger Games. So if you spent a few weeks in Pan Am, you would know the difference between someone who lived in the capital versus someone who lived in District 12. How? From their wardrobe, right? You would just look at what they were wearing and you would know they're the ones with the wealth and the status and the money and they're the ones that don't have it. Paul is saying, my heart did not run after their money or all the status and comfort and pleasure and security that their money afforded them. I was not moved to use my pastoral ministry among you. I wasn't in it for the money. Why is this so beautiful and so crucial? Because it is the clear teaching of Scripture from beginning to end that you can either have God or you can have money, but you cannot have both. You can either, damn, we can either have God or we can have money, but we cannot have both. Here's what I mean by this. Down at the bottom of your life, the thing that everything else is anchored to, or if your life had an engine, that engine, or the one thing that you are ultimately looking to, counting on, trusting in. It is either God and all that he is for you, or it is money and all that it can be for you. It is not a both and. You cannot have both things. There is no room for compromise. You cannot love God and love money both. Can't do it. And yet that's what coveting signals. Coveting is saying, hey, having God is not enough. I also really need this thing over here if I'm going to have joy. Do you feel the pulling in separate directions? Coveting is saying, I can do this. The Bible says you can't. There's tons of places where we see this. So think about the Ten Commandments with me. The first commandment and the last commandment are bookends. Did you ever notice that? The first great command says, you shall have no other gods before me. This would have been shocking in a polytheistic culture. Why not? We can have dozens of gods. Everybody's got their own god. And Yahweh steps in and says, no, that's wrong. There's only one true and living God, and it's me, and I must be the only anchor for your life. And then the last command is what? You shall not covet. You shall not covet your neighbor's house, your neighbor's wife, your neighbor's servants, your neighbor's life, your neighbor's ox, your neighbor's donkey, your neighbor's assets, or anything that is your neighbor's. You shall not covet. You feel this? Coveting is adding an additional God to the Lord. It's not being fully content with God and whatever he has for you, but it's saying, I, I got God, but I also got to have this over here. It is a 
division, a dissonance in our hearts. Gazing longingly at anything in addition to God is sin. The Ten Commandments teach us that beautifully. This, of course, is exactly what Jesus taught. He said it like this. Jesus was so beautifully straightforward. You cannot serve two masters. No one can. Either he will be devoted, hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to this one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and serve money. You can't do it. All right, let me translate this into Bostonian. We can either have our money and our degrees and our status and our certifications and our homes and our cars and our wardrobes and our 401ks and our Air Jordans and our Amazon Echoes and our Cape Vacations. Or we can have God. But we cannot have both. All right, let me say that a different way. You can either have a $500,000 house in Melrose with a glass backboard in the backyard and a treehouse on the side and a fireplace, or you can have God, but you cannot have both. You can either have a 2016 Honda Accord with 5,000 miles and Bluetooth technology, so I don't even have to take my phone out of my pocket and it plays the next song from iTunes. Or you can have God, but you can't have both. You can either have a $100,000 job and state certification and a looming pension, or you can have God, but you cannot have both. You always fall into the trap of thinking that I'm preaching to you when I'm actually just preaching to me week after week after week. All right, let me say this a different way. It's not that you can't have money, lots of money, or a nice vehicle, or a dope wardrobe, or sweet vacation, or material possessions, beautiful ones, costly ones. It's fine. It's that they cannot have you. They cannot have you. There can be no question that Christ has no rivals in your life, not even other people's stuff. That must be unquestioned. So you can have a $500,000 house with a glass backboard and a treehouse on the side and a fireplace if you would give it up in a second for God. You can drive a 2016 Honda Accord with 5,000 miles and Bluetooth technology if you would give that car away in a second for God. You can have a killer job with lots of zeros and a wonderful retirement plan if you would walk away from it in a second if it meant having more of God. But at some point, Somehow, it's got to be crystal clear, crystal clear, whether it is God or it is money that your joy and your hopes, your self-actualization is anchored to. It cannot be both. That's what Paul is getting at when he says, 
This is so important. I didn't covet anyone's money. It was life and death for him as a minister of the gospel. It is life and death for me. It is life and death for you. So if we feel why this is so crucial, the next question, the last question becomes what? How in the world do I get there? How in the world do I get there? All right, in our text, Paul hints at two remedies that are evidences, pursuits of ours that would show us that we're moving away from covetousness and toward the glory of God. I'm a math guy. I'm a words guy too, but I'm a numbers guy. So I usually take gospel truths and I put them in equations for myself. So here's this one I want to work with you from these two verses. Contentment plus generosity equals the end of covetousness. Contentment and generosity, if you've got those two going on, covetousness is dying in your heart. All right, let's work the text and we will see them. Okay, first one, he says, I coveted no one's silver, gold, or power. Then he says, you yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities. Okay, what's that? This is him saying, hey, I had what I needed, and I was good with it. I had what I needed, and I was good with it. This is the drum that he is always beating with his people. Here's another longer verse where he says it like this in 1 Timothy. This is what Rachel read. Godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we've got food and clothing, with these, we will be content. Here's another metonym or a stand-in. Food and clothing is a stand-in for what? Necessities. I've got what I need to fulfill the callings that God has placed on my life. And I'm not looking for luxuries or extravagances. I am content. I am content with what I have before me. That's a disposition of the heart that is the flip side of, I need what they have. I got to have what he has. Why don't I have what she has? Contentment with what I've got. Right Now, defining necessities and thinking through, how do I think about, okay, is this a need or a luxury is not the point the church is never going to issue you some checklist of here are your necessities and that's all that you're allowed to have if you're going to be holy. No. The last fight that we had in our house about necessities was about braces. I didn't think that braces were in the category of necessity. Grace definitely thinks that braces are in the category of necessity. Where, where do you land with that? <laughs> So if you go look inside Julia's mouth or Brandon's mouth right now, you will see who won that fight in our house. And it's okay. What was the point of that fight? We don't want to love money. And we want to be thinking, what is an extravagance? What is a luxury? What is a necessity? Let's live over here. Because that's the life that God calls us to. You should be regularly asking this question in your life. This purchase this use of my money, where is my heart in this? Am I going after this because I need one more thing in order to really have joy and I got to keep up with the Joneses over there? Or is my heart at a great place and the Lord knows that I'm spending this money to advance the callings that he has in my life? So Levi and I talked about this with me personally this week and he was in 
unbelievable help for me to say, let's think in terms of what's needed for what God's called you to do. And if this fits in that category, brother, you're free. You're free. Go for it. Contentment in your heart marks the end of covetousness. I'll just give you one example from my own life and how this plays out. So you know I'm a sneakerhead, right? Did I already say the word sneakers today? Okay. Covetousness arises in my heart when I see people with really fresh kicks. Uh, You know that Michael Jordan put a new pair of sneakers on for every game he ever played in? Did you know this? Oh, my heart is in a bad place when I hear that. For me, something as stupid as sneakers is a test of my heart to say, will you be content or will you always be grumpy about what's on your feet and who's wearing what? And so I have to discipline myself about my sneakers. Right now I got three pairs, basketball sneakers, Derek Rose's, $45 at Models. They were on a wicked sale. Running shoes, Adidas, uh, got them at Costco for like 28 bucks. I was like, wow, I almost bought multiple pairs, but I'm a coveter. And then I have these, which my mom bought me for Christmas five years ago for $120, because you know how mothers don't care about what they spend for their kids? So I wear these fancy kicks when I preach, and that's all the sneakers that I own because I'm disciplining my heart to be content, content, content. You see that? Now your fight may be something else. Me and McCann laugh all the time because like my idols are not his idols. And he's like, I would never spend 10 cents on that. Is your heart content? Have you said no to any extravagances because Jesus is better? Paul says, hey, I was with you. I worked super hard. My needs were covered, and I was good. And then last one is generosity. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. Is this unbelievable? Paul worked hard. He covered his bills. And then what did he do with any excess cash that he had? He gave it away. He bought food and clothing for others. He housed others who were helping to advance the gospel. He can say to us, I coveted no one's silver, gold, and apparel. And when we go, man, I don't believe you, he can say, well, look, I was content and I was generous. I don't know of any other way for you to show that you don't love money than for you to give your money away. I don't know any other way for you to get there. Why do you think I talk to you about giving? Who was the last person that I had the giving conversation with? Maybe it was Brad. He's not here. Why do I do that? Am I a masochist? No. (laughs) Am I trying to strum up enough money so that we can pay the bills of the life of this church? No. Am I angling for a pay raise for myself? No. The reason that I sit with you and I say, hey, talk to me about your money, which is like one of the hardest conversations that I ask as a pastor, is because I want to see you set free from the love of money. And I don't know any other way that that's going to happen if you don't discipline your heart to give it away. Here's the conversation that happens with me and my soul at the end of every month. We give once a month. This is me. Money. I don't love you more than I love God. 
And you know what my money says back to me? <laughs> you lied. <laughs> you know you do. And then I say to my money, no, I don't. I cannot love God and love you both to the same degree at the same time. I can't do it. And I choose God. And then my money says to me, you lying. <laughs> Prove it. And then I say, okay, the only proof I have is this. I'm going to give you away. Boom. Monthly tithe to the life of Seven Mile Road. Boom. Who else do we know that needs money? And let's give it away. It's the only way that Grace and I know to drive a stake in the ground that says we're not going to love money. This is also true for whatever material possessions the Lord has given to you. I can tell you two couples in the church who are moving away from a love of money, and it's the Rosells and the Robinsons. And you know how I know that? They both have these houses that the Lord has given them, and they both, sober, they were sober, opened their homes to our student ministry sleeping over on Friday night. And the Robinsons had a dozen tween age girls up till three in the morning. And the Rosells had seven or eight middle school boys. And then everybody crashed over there the next day. And I stood out on the porch and I said, this is my sermon. I don't love this house more than I love God. I'm going to be generous with it. I'm going to open this house up for the good of the advance of the gospel, even though it's going to cost me, even though it's going to cost me. You feel that? I could go through all these faces I'm looking at, the way that you give, the way that you give of what the Lord has given to you. You are shouting to Melrose. Contentment and generosity because we don't love money. All right. Let's go for that together. We must go for that as a church with the way we handle our money, but you must go for that if you're going to inherit the kingdom of God. I'm content. I'm wrestling with decisions in the fear of God, and I'm generous. I give my stuff away. Let's pray together. Father, this, we're Americans, so Father, we've got this thing called Amazon Echo, and we can just talk to it, and it will buy stuff for us. We are in deep trouble when it comes to the love of money and material possessions. I pray that you would change the hearts of this community, that you'd set us free from the love of money, oh, that we'd be free from it, that we'd be so satisfied in Christ and all of his benefits, that we're content and we're generous. Would you write that story into the heart of Seven Mile Road? Would you really do it? Hear my prayer and answer, I pray. Amen.